And on the one hand, you could say, well, Christian discipleship really looks like what really entails everything that the Bible has to say on the subject. And really, uh, it says a lot. It says a lot. But on the other hand, we believe you can actually arrange what Christian discipleship is into four main categories. Um, we in this church believe that growing in Christ, that, um, that Christian discipleship involves loving God. It involves growing in Christ's likeness, serving Christ's church, and going and making disciples. This is, if our vision is to, um, to glorify God by making disciples of all nations, then these are really the disciples that we're trying to be and trying to make by God's good grace. Now, tonight we're on the subject of growing in Christ-likeness, and we're going to zero in really on a single text in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verse 18 in particular. Um, but I want to start just by showing you that, I mean, I don't want, even though we're zeroing in on a single text, I don't want anyone going away tonight thinking that there's just one or two verses that talk about growing in Christ's likeness. I want to give you a little bit of insight with three other passages before we launch in, just to show you that this isn't a rare thing, and it's a, it's a thing that we regularly encounter in the Scriptures. So, for example, growing in Christ's likeness is, is what God wants for all who follow Jesus and one of the things that we see is that he had planned that we would grow in Christ's likeness in the past. In fact, in eternity. Romans chapter 8 verse 29 tells us that those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. So he saves us not only to rescue us from our sins, but to make us like Jesus. That's his eternal blueprint. That's what he's doing in the past. What is he doing in the present? Ephesians 4.22 tells us that Jesus saved us and in a sense recreated us. He recreated you to be like him in true righteousness and holiness. There are two words that definitively describe the Lord Jesus Christ in his goodness and in his person. So in the past, God has planned that we be conformed to the image of his son. In the present, Jesus is recreating us to be like himself through his spirit. And then we look forward to the future. And 1 John 3 verse 2 gives us insight into this, where it says, Dear friends, we know, now we know that we are the children of God, and that what we will be has not yet been made known. In other words, not fully realized yet. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So with those three perspectives, past, present, and future, God's purpose conceived in eternity, worked out in history, and to be completed at some point in the future is encapsulated in this very simple concept, Christ-likeness. God intends to make us like his son. Isn't that an exciting thing? Isn't that an exciting thing for those of us who know what sin is like in our lives, for the way it affects us deeply in our own hearts, for the frustration that it brings, for the way that our ungodliness, our unrighteousness impacts not only our own hearts, but those around us too. Our closest friendships, the people we live with, the people we work beside, the people in church family life. Our sin has this sad effect of impacting on other people. 
But if we claim to be Christian, we must be like Christ. We must pursue Christ-likeness and recognize not only the value of it, but the essential nature of it. Uh, Here's the problem, though. We can find it hard, can't we? Uh, We hear these regular calls for conformity to Christ, to become like him. You often see in New Testament letters in particular these passages which call on us to put to death the misdeeds of the body, to put on Christ. Kill this, cultivate this. But we find it hard. All it takes is for someone like me to ask the question, how is it going in terms of growing in Christ-likeness? What's your self-assessment, if I might use that term, of the extent of your growth? Now, I think there'll be a lot of variance in how we might answer that question, even in this room. Some people are really good and can put their finger on something that really shows, you know, I'm not the same person that I was a year ago. And that's God's work. And I love that. Some feel this deep sense of gratitude for a transformation that's evident in them, whether it's in a certain situation or or a sin that used to trouble them significantly that seems to be tempered. Well, you see it in your passions, your heart, your practices. Other people see the change in you and rejoice with you in that. But many others are full of disappointment. They can find it hard to pinpoint much that's changed. It's hard to see through the everyday struggles that don't seem to go away. And even though we like the idea of the killing sin and the cultivating virtue, we don't really feel like we're getting anywhere when it comes to growing in Christ-likeness. Well, my encouragement for us tonight is to remember who is at work in us what he's done, and what it means for the day-to-day pursuit of Christ-likeness for us. And that's why we're going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. Here is what God's Word says. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Okay, let me read it again. We all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, there is a very, very important scripture for us on the subject of sanctification. In the wider context, it comes in the middle of this series of discussions where, with, between Paul, or that Paul's trying to teach on to the Corinthian church regarding the ministry of the Old Covenant, the way, that, the way that God was proclaimed in the Old Covenant compared to how Christ is proclaimed in the New Covenant. But in this verse, we have a succinct explanation of what the Holy Spirit is doing in us and what he wants to produce in us. There are two simple things, behold and become. That's what we see in this passage, behold and become. Let's look at the first point, beholding Christ. Look with me at verse 18 again. It says a strange thing, really. We all have unveiled faces. Now, I don't know what you think of whenever you think of a veil, What comes to mind? Well, maybe a bridal veil, or maybe a burqa worn by Muslim women. 
When we think about those types of veil, the, the, the purpose of such veils is to hide the wearer from view. But that's not really what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about something that actually prevents the wearer from seeing past the veil. So don't think of this removal of a veil like the pretty bridal mesh. Think, think blackout curtain. What's Paul's point? Well, he's trying to get across the point that before we come to believe in Jesus Christ, we are veiled. We're all, in a sense, blind, okay? We're blind. The God of this age, as you read through to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, just a few verses down, we find a link in the context here that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, if you have not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible is very bold in terms of the presentation of your circumstances just now. We might be walking around thinking that we've got 2020 vision, seeing all things clearly. But the Bible says that if we cannot see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, the centerpiece, the center person of the entire universe, we are actually blind. I thought I could see perfectly well when I was 19 years old, before I met Jesus for myself. I thought I understood everything that was going on in life, but what arrogance I had. No, all things only became clear to me whenever I put my faith in Jesus Christ and trusted in his blood for the cleansing for my sin. And I pray that if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, you might explore what that might look like for you. You might consider who Jesus Christ is. Ask for one of the books in the bookstall that might help explain that to you. Ask the person who brought you tonight to talk that kind of thing through. To, to ask them, what does it mean to say that the gospel changes me from someone who is blind to someone who can see? You would enjoy that, asking that question and hearing the answer. True salvation is only found when we see what happens in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. When we see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, Paul says there, we're unveiled. Now we see. And verses 16 and 17 of 2 Corinthians 3 gives us really two reasons. Verse 16 puts it down to repentance. Whenever it says anyone turns to the Lord, here's the veil again, the veil is taken away. So whenever anyone, this is the language of repentance, whenever anyone turns from their sin in sorrow over it and turns to Jesus, the veil has been taken away. And verse 17 attributes that removal to the work of the Holy Spirit. This turning and seeing have something to do with his presence and the presence that he brings, brings us freedom. Now, what is this freedom? It seems a little bit out of place in a sense. What is the freedom? Well, that's where we've got to look to the context. It seems to be that it's the freedom to see. That's the whole reason for removing the veil. So we all have unveiled faces so that we can see Jesus. The freedom that was spoken about here in verse 17 is this freedom to see. When this veil of unbelief is removed, sin is seen for what it is, and the weight of guilt and shame finally falls in the chest like a 10-ton weight. We feel conviction. John chapter 16, Jesus tells us that is the Spirit's work. He convicts the world of sin in regard to righteousness 
holiness, and judgment. But the Spirit also shows us Christ. And in a sense, it's like he takes our head and turns it towards the cross. And we look into the face of Jesus Christ. Now again, when it says that we look in his face, don't, don't miss the meaning of this. Paul doesn't mean that you have to look at Jesus and consider his complexion or anything like that. No, face in biblical terms is a representation of all that you can know about a person. About a person. So if you see his face, you know him. You know who he is. You know why he's come. You know what he's doing right now in the world. You know him. And that's an incredible thing to read because seeing God's face actually was something that was barred in the Bible before Christ came. People were scared when they saw this, a theophany, you know, a manifestation of God's presence in some way that, that tempered his glory to the point that the person seeing the vision did not die. And even when Moses made the bold request in Exodus chapter 34, show me your glory, God said, okay, but just a bit and not my face. For no one may see me and live. But now, but now, according to 2 Corinthians 3 in the Apostle Paul, the Spirit's work in us gives us freedom to behold Christ. We're free to look, free from the fear. The fear of judgment that would come from beholding his glory and not being ready for it. We're free to look without this fear of condemnation. And that's something we must grasp. There can be no transformation without this initial forgiveness. As forgiven people, we're set free, free to please him without fear, because we are not coming on the basis of our own works and our deeds. We're not coming on the basis of our own credibility, but simply through faith in Jesus. That's grace. And this freedom of the knowledge of his grace that covers every failure is the very thing that emboldens the act of looking. We're free to look with unveiled faces so that we can see Jesus and knowing his grace emboldens the act of looking. At one time, as I said, the Lord said to Moses, no one may see me and live, but now the Spirit turns your head and puts matchstick in your, matchsticks in your eyes. Don't stop looking to him. Don't stop looking at Jesus. Behold him and know him. So we fix our eyes on him. And we grow in our knowledge of him and in our relationship with him and in our likeness. We look in utter amazement at Christ. That's why we seek to have sermons and services and ministries that magnify Christ where we always want to get to Christ as quickly as we can and just put him on display as his word is opened, whether we do that here in this room or we do it in our living rooms or at young adults in one-to-one across a coffee shop table, wherever we want to talk about Jesus. We look in utter amazement at his incarnation, the eternal one entering time, the one who was bigger than the whole universe becoming a tiny baby. We look with speechless awe at the compassion he had on the poor in his life, the care he offered the lonely, the unloved, the love he had for his enemies. 
We look in astonishment at his sinless life as he volunteers himself for a sin-bearing death, showing the costliness of both his and the Father's love for sin-soaked rebels like us. We look in wonder at the discarded chrysalis of linen in the tomb and feel our hearts burst as he proves to his friends that he's alive and his body is the first fruits of our resurrection for we will be like him one day in a glorified state. Uh, We look to him as we sing, the one who heals us. And sometimes we just shake our heads in wonder, don't we? As you look at Jesus, as you reflect on Jesus, as you hear him speak in the Gospels, as you see the prophets point forward, as you hear the New Testament apostles explain I mean, who cannot hear God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, become sin for us, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God and not burst. I did not deserve that. You did not deserve that righteousness. But beholding Christ, you love him. Beholding Christ, seeing his face, you know him. And it's like a light goes on. And here's the main point in this tonight. It's by beholding Christ, according to 2 Corinthians 3.18, that we become like Christ. It's by beholding Christ that we become like him. Look with me again at verse 18. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We are being transformed into his image. A metamorphosis is taking place. We're being changed from one thing into another. Uh, My family visited the Science Museum in Glasgow a while ago, a couple of years ago. And without question, our favorite exhibit was the photomorphing booth. I don't know if you've been there, but there's this thing where there's a booth and it's got two seats either side of each other. And basically, there are two cams that look at you and take a photo of yourself. And then uh, once both um, people have pressed the button and had their photograph taken, there is a countdown start. Five, four, three, two, one. And all of a sudden, you see you your face all of a sudden just morphing very gradually into the face of the person opposite. So Liam Garvey's sitting there, snap, five, four, three, two, one. Well, Garvey, wow, that was amazing. It was, and it was amazing. I was like, you look like me. Funny that. Um, uh, it's, then we did it with, the, then Catherine and I did it together. I, honestly, I was loving this machine. The kids were moving on to other things. I was trying to grab random strangers. Do you want to come and have a seat here? Like, let's talk. Let me see. Let me see. Are we related? You know, that's a bit. Uh, it, it's, it's a funny thing to watch. There's a transformation that's taking place by the work of the Holy Spirit in us to change us so that we don't really look like what we look like in spiritual terms anymore. 
And we are gradually, bit by bit, as we'll get to that, going to look more and more like the one whom we behold, the one in whose face is light and glory and righteousness and love. It's something ugly to something beautiful, right? It is the caterpillar to the butterfly. There's a transformation that's taking place. And one of the things that we must ensure that we do as Christian disciples is recognize that this is God's purpose in us. Remember I said at the start, past, present, future. This must be a focus for us. Change must be something we pursue. Change must be something that we ask each other to help us do. How often do we pray God, transform us. Change us more and more into the likeness of your Son. We ought to make it a daily prayer so that in our daily living, our daily outworking of the Scriptures that we read, of the daily beholding of the God that we love, Jesus Christ, we change. Now, this change happens not by massive leaps and bounds, but bit by bit. Did you see what it said? We are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. Now, transformation is something that takes place bit by bit. It does, Paul does mention the fact that it's ever-increasing, which tells us that there is progression, okay? There is progression. But sometimes I think that Christians, we tie ourselves up in knots because we, and we leave ourselves almost paralyzed because we feel inept in this. Oh, I really don't feel like I'm growing very much. It just, oh, and, and there is the temptation to throw in the towel. Not in a big sense in terms of faith, but in terms of effort. And we thought about this a lot in our 2 Peter series, actually, in 2 Peter chapter 1, where Peter explains to us that his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who loved us, Jesus Christ. And then he goes straight on to say, so this divine power is essential in this kind of transformation. But he goes immediately on to say, now make every effort. Divine power is necessary, but our participation is vital. God works by His Spirit through our human agency once more to help us grow in Christ-likeness. Now, transformation for us, let's not be dejected about this, is more often than not this bit-by-bit, ever-increasing glory. It's a, if you want to think about it in cooking terms, it's a slow cooker, it's a slow burner. I'm not denying the fact that sometimes there might be bursts of growth. There might be microwave moments, if you like. You know, I know that's a terrible analogy, but never mind. Sometimes there are microwave moments. It's like something you read in a fridge, isn't it? Anyway, uh, sometimes there are microwave moments, but sanctification is this lifelong slow burner. And I think this is what makes talking about growth difficult for us, because sometimes, as I mentioned, it is hard to see in ourselves. 
That's what we, uh, that's something that's common to all sorts of areas of life where there's some kind of familiarity. So, again, thinking about my own children. Um, I, I, I know that when granny comes to visit and says, wow, his speech is really coming on, or wow, she's getting really tall, or something like that, I'm inclined to say, oh really? I didn't really notice. But that's because I'm there all the time, seeing them all the time, and not really noticing it because there is this gradual change. It's the bit by bit before my eyes. And often I'm surprised at her surprise. But this is the benefit of external perspective, actually. For, for us, that's another thing that the church family is for. Because even when it comes to growing in Christ-likeness, we might not individually see the bit-by-bit growth that is taking place in us because, well, you know how it goes. We're actually, we might have very well seen God work in wonderful ways in some area of our lives. But because our focus becomes so distracted by some new vice, some other hardship that's come our way, there's almost a forgetfulness, a forgetfulness to thank God and reflect on the fact that, oh, actually, do you know, I am reacting differently. I'm not the lazy guy that I was a year ago. I'm not sitting down watching box set after box set on Netflix and doing my wife's head, and I'm not speaking from personal experience. I don't have Netflix. Uh, I'm just giving an example that might be particular to you. Anyway, um, that we are not, we are changed, but we don't see it because we're distracted by this new thing. Oh, I'm becoming angry at people very much just now. That never used to be a problem for me. Why is that happening? Or, actually, I've got this real threat of to my health just now, and everything's up in the air, and I'm not really sure. That becomes the distracting thing that means that we don't see our progress. Now, this is why church family is vital. Actually, this is why small group discipleship is vital in the life of a church family. We need each other's help to change. And we need each other, the Bible says that, we need each other's help in recognizing the things that we ought to be giving God glory for. We should be glorifying him for these changes. And it's often the case that just as granny's external perspective gives us insight on the change in our little ones, a brother or sister's external perspective gives us insight on the change that God is doing in us. And therefore, we praise him together. The change is taking place bit by bit and it requires not only personal effort, but a concerted effort. And one of the great things that encourages me from this passage in 2 Corinthians 3.18 is that the change here is the Spirit's work in us. We're not doing this on our own. We all who with unveiled faces contemplate, reflect on the Lord's glory, behold the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. God the Holy Spirit has been given to us to help us share the gospel with people who don't know Jesus. But also, not only to show the gospel, not only to show Jesus off to the world through us, but to show Jesus off to us in us. 
And the Lord Jesus makes us like himself through his spirit whom he sent. Again and again and again, you hear him say to his disciples, those fallible boys, don't worry, I'll send help. I want you to go and do this. Don't worry, I'll send help. But when the comforter, the spirit arrives, he will show you, he will guide you into truth. And so and that's so true, especially in this area of sanctification, of growing in Christ-likeness. I read this week from William Temple, the wartime Archbishop of Canterbury, who when reflecting on, this, reflecting on this call to be like Jesus said, it is a futile thing telling me to write a play like Shakespeare. It's equally futile showing me Jesus and telling me to grow in his likeness. Or oh, he can live a righteous life like that, but I can't. But, he said, if the genius of Shakespeare could live in me, well, then I could write plays like that. And if the spirit of Jesus could live in me, then I could live a life like that. He said, that's the secret. So often we think we're on our own as Christians. I often forget the power that is on tap, the limitless supply of divine power that is for me through the Holy Spirit. And when trials and difficulties come, it can be so easy to feel isolated despite the fact that the Spirit lives in me and the Spirit indwells His people, the church family, so that together we might face the trial on our own and respond not in sinful ways, but in godly ways. And in fact, other passages in the Scriptures tell us that this is exactly what the church family is for. The, the church family has leaders like Epaphras in Ephesians 4 who pray, make it their regular prayer that members of the church would grow in Christ-likeness. Colossians 1, 28 and 29 tells us that those who proclaim God's word do so intending to see maturity in those who hear and believe. James even goes so far as to tell us that even our present sufferings work a perseverance in us and help to make us more like Jesus. They make us mature, he says. They make us complete. He's pointing us to Jesus again. And I pray we would never forget that. I pray we would always be a church family who gets rid of superficiality and breaks through the casual in our relationships in order that we might truly encourage each other to grow in Christ-likeness. And when, by God's grace, more people come to faith in him, we know what we're training them to do. We know how we're discipling and mentoring them. We're encouraging them to love God deeply, to grow in Christ's likeness, to serve Christ's church, and to go and make disciples. Let's bow our heads and let's pray.